and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined this week by a very special guest. Uh, you may have heard of him, uh, best-selling uh, author, Mark Karras. How you doing, Mark? Hey, doing well. Hey. Well, glad to be here. Yeah, this is uh, your first time on the show, uh, our first this time uh, speaking together. Uh, tell the audience uh, a little bit uh, about who you are. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we can go present, and then if we, you know, need to go back, I could talk a little bit about that. My story uh, what too. Is, what is time? Start anywhere, finish anywhere. <laughs> It'll be a great story. Right? Yeah. So I think just to, I'll start with the present, and then I'll kind of go back and share a little bit of my story, and which it's all relevant to why I wrote this book. So right now I'm a. Um, adjunct professor at a university in the counseling program, teaching faith and counseling integration courses, uh, licensed marriage and family therapist, and like to write and stuff and, you know, husband, father. So some of those are some of the things that I'm doing now, but yeah, I, I wasn't always this well grounded but let, let me let me go back in the past. So, you know, grew up. Man, everyone's family is a little dysfunctional. But I, you know, I think mine perhaps was a little little more off the charts. Mom was a drug dealer, um, drug addict. She would eventually die from a drug overdose. She married a, a biker from the the. Uh, it's called a, a gang called the, the Pagans. So they were, you know, violence and drugs, and it was, you know, very scary, certainly, environment to be around. Uh, mental illness is a big point of conversation, too, and how it relates probably t- to my book in some ways. And so looking at my family, and this is the therapist part of me, to see if there were any, any generational patterns. And so my great-grandmother died in a mental hospital. Her sister was mentally ill. Three out of my four uncles were diagnosed with some form of mental illness. And then my father is mentally, he has a mental illness. And then my, I have two brothers. One is a twin brother. He's actually a corrections officer. And then my younger brother's a year and two months younger. And he uh, has, he has a mental, he has paranoid schizophrenia. And he's, well, I think he'll be in jail for life. Because when he was off his meds, he did something stupid, and he he in jail while off his meds, probably a few years in, um, and this it's just very tragic, mm-hmm. and this gets into the system. And but he was acting out with a cellmate. They took him out of that, put him in with a guy he didn't know who was also acting up. Then that night he wound up murdering his cellmate, and so he'll be in prison probably for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So just all to say that. I didn't grow up Christian. I didn't have a Christian faith. Very, you know, I was a cutter. I was depressed. I was lost. Fast forward a little bit, tried to kill myself, tried to get AIDS, and that's a whole other story. But eventually we fast forward to 21 for the sake of time, and that's when I became a Christian. It was pretty, it was kind of a Damascus road, you know, knocked me in the head pretty hard, hard pretty hard. And, you know, it just, my, my twin brother became a Christian a year and two months before me. Mm-hmm. And he was in a oneness Pentecostal church. 
and that was a pretty strict, no-nonsense, all Bible, we're the only ones with the truth. If you never spoke in tongues, you're not saved. If women cut their hair, if they even trimmed it, they were going to hell. Uh, I mean, it was a very, very, you know, uh, what some might call legalistic background, which is relevant to my to subsequent journey. But one day I was in a field all by myself, and I remember kind of the last words, if there was kind of a BC moment, it was, God, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I just lifted my hands, literally lifted my hands and said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And, and that moment was... I mean, it completely rocked my whole world, mm. and it wasn't. It wasn't a like, man. I'm, I deconstruct all day, all the time, even in my dreams. Mm. Um, I, I could not deconstruct that moment because I was alone. There wasn't a crowd hyping me up. You know, it wasn't a church and the music. It was just me alone, and then literally feeling something so transcendent that I've never felt before, just completely changing everything so so that's a little bit of the journey into sort of the christian faith then into one is pentecostalism uh, for about four years that was probably tearing my my inner worlds apart i wasn't allowed to go to school i wasn't allowed to fellowship with people who believed in the trinity so i was a very you know boxed in legalistic i mean i was so tightly wound that i i couldn't even drink soda at one point Mm-hmm. Because I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. I, it was so. I eventually got out of that. That was due to the pastor and the pastor's wife. Uh, well, due to her being my f- Facebook friend, I something happened between them that wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, but after seeing that, uh, I, I literally ran away to uh, a Christian college called Naya College. Mm-hmm. A very healing experience, but a very disorienting one because it wasn't like it wasn't a conservative Christianity per se, probably middle of the road evangelicalism. But I remember my my first couple of weeks, couple of months. I mean, I, I was on the floor having panic attacks. Now, granted, back then I didn't know what the hell was going on, but I I thought I was literally going insane. Um, you know, who is God? Uh, who who are, are real Christians? What is truth? Um, it, it was these questions were twisting my heart and my mind, and I literally thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in a psych ward, which is I visited many times with my younger brother. So, but that wound up being over time a, a pretty healing experience for me. And but after that uh, college experience. Then, you know, I started deconstructing everything. Mm-hmm. So that, that space was like a healing space for me. My deconstructive mind wasn't in kind of operation so much. But after I graduated there, and then I got my master's in counseling, then subsequently master's of divinity. I mean, if, if it wasn't, even if it was nailed to the ground, I was deconstructing it. I, I in that my mind just got set loose because... Someone who's deceived doesn't know they're deceived. You know, it was right. like this, you know, people can be 100% passionate about what they believe, but they can be sincerely wrong. Um, 
So let, let me let me yeah. just interrupt right at, at that yeah, point. Yeah. I I want to pick up there, but I don't want to I don't want to lose a couple of questions. So sure. you you started with the Oneness Pentecostal, and you had mentioned that your twin brother uh, had um, become a Christian and uh, yes. joined the Oneness Pentecostal. How did he get involved with Oneness Pentecostalism? That's that's yeah. not a, a very common branch that you run into, and so I'm just wondering what the sure. what the history is that drew you there. Yeah. This um, and, and for context too, you know, during that time, you can go into the Christian bookstore and find oneness Pentecostalism in the cult section. You know, so how, how to minister and save these people? I don't know how they're faring these days, but um, not, so not well, <laughs> not well. <laughs> yeah, I haven't kept up on them, but it's been a while. Um, my twin brother, it actually was through a friend. It was actually through a friend who talk to him about it because, well, actually, his sister was the pastor's wife. And so it was our mutual friend. It was a guy who I played music with as well. But my twin brother was the one who was um, who became a Christian uh, just by interacting and being invited to church and just kind of, uh, you know, taking it, taking the Bible and, and that kind of context and running with it. Mm-hmm. But it took me about a year and a half after he became a Christian um, of him. You know, I, would, I was in a progressive metal hardcore band at the time, and I'd come home from shows, and he'd tell me about Jesus and just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I'd be like, F you, and I don't want to hear it. But over time, you know, really interesting things started happening. Um yeah, I don't know how much to get into that, but it yeah. was, yeah. Well, you know, I was just curious. It's it's uh, yeah. it's off, it's often either a girl or a band. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's mutual friends. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the other question, uh, because you had such a, uh, and I'll just say it, a cult like uh, first experience, and then you mm-hmm. end up in the the Bible college that you ended up in uh, kind of probably in many ways telling you that a lot of the things that you would fundamentally believe were wrong. Um, Did you ever have a time when you were, um, when your doubts turned almost to uh, atheism? Uh, Did you, did you, did you get disgusted enough with it or doubtful enough with it to have a a deep high level uh, doubt? Yeah. Um, in my college experiences, not so much. That really, like I said, it wasn't, a, interestingly enough, it wasn't a time for intense deconstruction because it was sort of, these were, this was, the, and I don't even think it's fair to say it was a Bible college. It was a Christian college. But, and I'm, I'm friends, you know, Facebook friends, a guy who really spoke into my life, who was sort of one of the big leaders in the, in the college but it was more of Jesus as lover. You know, it was more like Jesus is lover. Jesus wants to bring you healing. Uh, there was inner healing prayer. It was a very kind of spiritual formation environment. Mm-hmm. But there was a season, probably after I graduated from there, that I was in a sort of station where I would call Angstville, mm-hmm. where just very angry, just bitter at the church, bitter at where I came from bitter at the BS doctrines that were fed to me. For some reason, it just that it just hit me like that. And I, I think that was probably a time where I doubted the most. 
doubted the Bible, doubted God. But I'll tell you, in all my experience, in all the BS and all the different Christian streams and trajectories I've been a part of, I think what kept me was a tangible experience with love that I've never, ever felt before. Mm -hmm. Like I can deconstruct most everything, but that was sort of an anchor that it's like no matter what Christian chaos was around me, something about this God or this Jesus character who is, you know, sort of the known slash unknown God changed my life. Like I can't, I can't deconstruct that, you know. I can deconstruct my beliefs about that uh, mysterious known slash unknown God, but something happened, and I think that sort of always anchored me, no matter what chaos and, and religious toxicity and poison came my way. So I find that uh, really fascinating when I when I speak to Justin Brierley. Uh, mm -hmm. He talks about his uh, con conversion experience when he was uh, a teen. And uh, he he does not, um, you know, have have doubts of the veracity of that experience. That was a formative experience for him. And I listen to stories like that, and it sounds mm -hmm. like your your experience was a formative experience that uh, is 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 beyond um, what what you would consider a normal human experience. And um, yeah, you know, you can you can use that as an anchor. But so many people like myself, uh, extras, yeah. never had a, a formative experience like that. We never had a conversion yeah. experience. I was born in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I became a Christian uh, for for reasons. <clears throat> Excuse me, good reasons. I, I would say uh, when I was very young, but um, I I never had what I would call uh, an encounter, uh, the kind of experience <laughs> that you're describing, and I I find it fairly common among Christians never to have had that kind of uh, experience. Uh, can you, can yeah. you speak to that? Yeah, it's, there's no sort of, well, let me tell you why that is, you know, there's some interesting things I thought about, like everyone's experience is different. And first of all, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm intelligent to know that I can't use that as an apologetic for the veracity of the Christian faith. Right, because there's other people in other religions who can make the same claim. You know, right. I was lost and I, I was found, so to speak. Nonetheless, that, that's what happened for me, and I can only speak for myself. What I find interesting is I don't know why people don't experience God in that way. Now, there could be one piece of the pie chart, and there's much more pieces, but there's something in attachment theory that I wonder if there is some truth to if if we talk to those people who haven't are do they do they typically lean left brain do they typically um, do not experience a full gamut of the emotional experiences or able to how articulate it or able to have modeling where they vulnerably shared it um, what was the relationship like with mom and dad? Was it was there heartfelt sort of I thou encounters with them? Or was mom and dad not abusive, but maybe busy or in the military or just gave you signals that, you know, they were just too busy and that's how they love me. But I never had a deep, heartfelt, emotional 
uh, connection with them. Mm-hmm. And that's not everybody, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's a little piece of the, the pie. And Paul Vitz wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, I don't think that's everyone's case, but he looks at some of the staunch atheists and critics of religion and actually looks at their relationships with their fathers. Um, so it, it's one interesting piece. It's not everybody's because then you'll have people who are like, well, yeah, we, we talked emotionally and it was deep and heartfelt and I knew they loved me and they hugged me. and they. But I think there could be a small percentage of people where that may be at play, at least on a psychological place. I don't know what you think of that. Well, uh, yeah, I've, ta- I've talked to more people than I can count, but not in any kind of academic way. And it just seems that um, people mm. are all over the board. And I haven't noticed any kind yeah. of correlation between uh, whether they had a, a, a good home, close relationships with family. I know for uh, myself, I had a very close relationship with uh, mm-hmm. family, uh, loving, caring family. But, you know, there were there were things in my life uh, and things about our relationship that would have been unique. Uh, there's also the question of mm. whether you hit rock bottom or not. I mean, a lot of people who have very strong <laughs> conversion stories often have a time in their life where they hit rock bottom in some kind yes, of way. Yes. You know, they had this 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 massive um, you know event or. Uh, some they came to you know trouble with the law, trouble with their health. Uh, you know they were in in some kind of state uh, where they felt almost completely undone as a human being, and mm-hmm. um, it seems like people with stories like that often have uh, stronger experiences. Uh, so that's the closest thing that I can come to a correlation. Yeah. Once again, that's there's nothing academic about that um, observation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some people say, and I don't know, you know, it's so hard because everybody's experience is different. I hate putting people in categories and labels or giving overarching meta narratives for anything, including why some people are, you know, atheists or, you know, strong Christians or, uh, you know, but some people say it's, it's the necessity of the complete shattering of the ego mm-hmm. where you're like, it's this, there's nothing left. Like I fully surrender. I give up my way of doing it is. And is there something to that where that's sort of the, the undoneness, the, you know, maybe for some, right. But then again, not others. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, 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 it's you no. can't, you can't really pigeonhole people. I, I can, I can say for myself, I, yeah. I don't, I don't think I've ever been quite undone in, in that way and I don't want to be undone. I don't want to give up my ego. I like me. Uh, so that's, yeah, that could yeah. be my problem. I don't know. But um, there you go. We figured it so, out. <laughs> so um, I know that I interrupted you with your story. I want to get uh, on with uh, some conversation about your book sure. and progressive sure. Christianity. And maybe you can weave some more of these uh, uh, biographical um, insights into sure. uh, some of our conversation, if you will. So I uh, when I read your book, by the way, uh, we're talking um, largely about a, a new book uh, by Mark Karras, uh, uh, Re- Religious Refugees. I don't remember the subtitle. Deconstructing, de, with parentheses, sort of constructing, deconstructing towards spiritual and emotional health, healing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's excellent. Uh, I've, I've been reading it over the uh, past couple of weeks, and... Um, 
I meant to uh, read it twice in that time, but uh, the world went crazy <laughs> since we first started talking. Uh, went in present tense is, yes. <laughs> so um, I, um, I got to tell you, just, just as a, um, uh, an example of how topsy-turvy uh, things have been for me, so I, I um, went on a, a show uh, yesterday, that podcast will be out in a couple of weeks, I imagine. But um, a friend of mine, uh, Robert Stanley, he does a, a show, and I went on his show yesterday, it, ostensibly to talk about surviving Corona. Uh, it's a book that uh, I mm. uh, organized and co-wrote with um, Thomas Ord, among other people. Um, oh, cool. And uh, we, uh, it's uh, believers and unbelievers examine their worldview during this time of crisis, and uh, wow. we talk. Uh, we talk about. Uh, suffering Corona and uh, how our worldview is holding up and why our worldview is superior and where they, where their weaknesses are. And so uh, there were, there were eight of us uh, that got together uh, to write that. Uh, I say eight, I think there were nine of us, five Christians, four uh, non-Christians Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the proceeds of that book are going to the International Red Cross to help uh, fight Corona. So I went I went on the show ostensibly to talk about that. <laughs> Didn't really talk about that too much because um, the mm. world blew up. And so uh, he asked uh, if uh, I wouldn't mind talking about uh, some of the um, racial issues in America. Yeah. Uh, and so I went prepared to talk about those two things and. It turns out that he had two other guests that um, uh, who were anarchists, and uh-huh. so um, without any preparation, I ended up debating two anarchists on uh, politics. Wow! <laughs> now that is something I want to hear. That's my world. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Be yeah. ready in season and out of season, as they say. Yeah. Well, uh, such as <laughs> such as my upbringing. So. Um, uh. So I do want to talk about uh, your book a little bit there. You know, I I want to to make sure that people understand that this is a good book. I'll make sure that there's a link to it. Um, It's long. You know, if you're if you're you get your value by the word, you're going to get a lot of a lot of value out of this book. (laughs) So that's true. Also, if you get your value out of uh, the amount of times you stop and say, wait, what? You're going to get a lot of value out of uh, out of this book, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I recommend it for both Christians uh, and non-Christians because, frankly, I think that progressive Christianity is something that um, the average mainstream uh, conservative to mainstream Christian simply doesn't know anything about. They don't understand it, uh, and the average ex-Christian doesn't understand it. Uh, and the average atheist who only knows Christianity uh, vaguely doesn't understand it. And so uh, I, I really put you up there uh, with the thinkers like John Shelby Spong. I don't know if you like uh, being in that company or not, but uh, if you've heard of Spong, um, you know, that's that's one of the proponents of uh, progressive Christianity. I also uh, hold as an example Marcus Borg, uh, who I... Uh, ran into early, um, well, I should say late in in my Christian walk. Uh, Greg Boyd uh, is one that I'm starting to get to know uh, these days. My good friend Randall Rouser uh, is not one that I would 
call completely progressive uh, yeah. in the same sense as you and Thomas Ord, but is certainly, you know, more down that path than conservatism. So I would love for you to answer uh, some mm-hmm. questions about this form of Christianity uh, and, and feel free to expand these things uh, to your book, to your background sure. uh, as we go with what time we have. So uh, I, I want to start with your relationship with the Bible. Um, And so one of the things that I have discovered with all uh, progressives that I've read and talked to is that they have just a fundamentally different way of looking at the Bible than uh, conservatives and even middle of the road, uh, what I call mainline uh, Christians. I I think, though, that if we if we made that divide, um, you know, Mm. just kind of drew a, a line in the sand on one side of the line is a person who views the Bible as the word of God in something like a literal way. These words are from God. They're, they're inspired by God. They're God's exact message or they're God's kind of message as interpreted through people. But God, God, this is what God intended to tell you exactly in some way. Every jot and, every jot and tittle. Exactly. And then there, there are the guys who would say, oh, no, the Bible is... The word, not the word of God, but the word about God, uh, as uh, progressively revealed uh, from human to human over time. Uh, in that, you know, God may be somewhere in that uh, picture, but God did not in any way write or shape what uh, the humans say. And sometimes the humans say wrong things about God, and God, in His infinite wisdom, uh, allow that and can can take that and make that a part of his uh, revelation. And so you, you've got some extremes there. And I find that progressives tend to be on that, um, the latter side that I mentioned. Tell me how uh, a progressive like yourself views the Bible. I think it, it starts there. Yeah, I will say, can, like, I'm so mindful of my experience. And as you're saying that, I... I think I don't know if it's the rebel in me, but I it I don't like actually being categorized. It's it's an interesting you know I've never actually called myself a progression Christian. Um, I've never felt that I was kind of in that camp, but I, I actually think I could be. Um, but interestingly enough, I've never felt at home there. But honestly, I guess I don't feel at home anywhere. Which is maybe a good thing. And actually, you know, that sort of is a sentiment in the qualitative research with the de-churched. It's like we, we are so fluid. We, are, we have an amalgam of different parts of who we are. So for me, I, I, ha- I have conservative parts. I have progressive parts, liberal parts, uh, Buddhist parts. You know, I have healed parts, wounded parts. So there, there's so, so no, much. Fu- no yeah. fundamentalist Christian would say they have Buddhist parts. So we, I think we can identify you as not a <laughs> fundamentalist Christian. <laughs> but but I, I probably have a fundamentalist part. I do. I acknowledge that. I think coming out of the Pentecostal church, I still, and that could be why I don't feel complete at home with progressive Christianity, mm-hmm. is because those, those fundamentalist parts are still in hiding. But I'm just, uh, you know, as a therapist, I'm just acknowledging that God, we're so diverse even within ourselves, and which is why the D-Church are like, yeah, I, I don't fall in any of those categories. 
but I can I can appreciate somewhere in the vein of a progressive Christianity. But the main question is is who Mark for you? How do you view the Bible? You know, this seems to be a little different than maybe some other people, especially in fundamentalist camps. And so I think I can try to answer that. Okay. So how do you, how do you yeah. How do you view the Bible? What yeah. what is it, it first of all, would you agree with the uh, or, or identify with uh, saying that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Um, the Bible, the Bible is the. I'm, I'm trying to think. It yes and no. Um, the Bible is the Word of God. You know, I, I think Karl Barth said it contains the Word of God. Uh, then, Word of God, of course, is logos. So, logos, primarily, the Word of God is not a proposition, but it's a person, mm-hmm. and that person is we could say Jesus. But you know, the word it contains words of God that are it contains words of humankind, words of human beings who have been inspired by God, but have at times have said, no, I'm not down with that. Like, for example, if God is trying to inspire towards beauty or truth or goodness or justice or shalom, and because the biblical writer is within a tribal context, and because God as uncontrolling love doesn't automatically download data into one's brain, while that person is saying, yes, God is telling me right now that God wants us to stone members of our community if they are sinning or our kids if they're disobedient to god Mm. or if they're you know prostitutes or that's where i say yeah i think that's no i don't think they were listening to the inspiration in those moments Mm -hmm. so i i think they get it some do some don't some get it some of the times but i don't think anyone gets it all the time so yeah. uh, would you would you agree then that the Bible contains some inaccurate information about God in places? Oh my goodness, that's that that keeps me sane. That keeps me Christian because there's no way that I can I can um, hold to the portrayals of God that suggest that God is worse than Hitler and Stalin put together. Okay. So, you know, the, you know, God killing ba- Egyptian babies or flooding the entire planet or, you know, commanding genocide or commanding stoning or plenty of there's some verses where God burned people alive. That's where I say, you know, I think there's something else going on in the text. And if I can at this moment share sort of a five-part lens that helps me consider Mm -hmm. which passages have a higher likelihood of reflecting and refracting the, what I consider the incredible, beautiful, loving character of God. I don't know if this. Yes. Yes. This is a a good time. Yeah. So this gets into, for me, how I view the Bible, but how I read the Bible. And so getting into what we would call hermeneutics. So no, I don't take at face value that every portrayal of God is 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, Mark, what do you mean? You're picking and choosing? Well, I think we all play a little cafeteria Christianity at, at some level, I think, if we're, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. Right? The Bible was written by more than 40 authors, written from three continents and 31,000 verses. 
I mean, come on, if we're honest, all the authors don't completely see eye to eye on topics such as theodicy and the nature of God and violence and love and heaven and hell. It's multivocal and kaleidoscopic in nature. That's, that's how I, I kind of see it. So how do I determine what passages are more likely to portray an accurate view of God? I say it's a five-part lens for me right now. This isn't for everybody. I can only speak for me and my experience. Okay, so, so let me let me just say before you uh, go yeah, there, you yeah, say five point a five part lens. Uh, uh, earlier reading that I was reading j- just earlier today, one of your blog posts, you talked about a quadrilateral or quadrilateral. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I you, evolved. I yeah, evolved. You, you have evolved from my perspective uh, in the last couple of hours. So. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So I went from a four to a five. Yeah. Um, no, interestingly enough, my my second book is a four, but in in the newer book, Religious Refugees, I, I throw in a another part of the lens here. Right. So very astute of you, my friend. So the the five part lens consists of this: the fruit of the spirit, the biblical definition of love. Like, like for me, is this? And I'll get into that, but. Okay, let me say the five-part lens first. The fruit of the Spirit, the biblical definition of love, the only parabolic picture Jesus gave of God the Father found in the prodigal son, uh, perfect love described in Matthew 5 in the radical self-giving others empowering life of Jesus Christ. So so maybe it's not an accurate portrayal of God in the scriptures if, one, God is exhibiting the works of the flesh. So God is, there's hatred and jealousy and rage and violence because I'm going to Galatians 5, yeah, that's not looking like the fruit of the Spirit here. Mm-hmm. So my second, I say God acts in the way that's not patient, not kind, not protective, but is easily angered, keeps records of wrong. That's sort of the definition of love I'm getting into. Mm-hmm. That God doesn't forgive or compassionately invite sinners back into God's presence. Jesus giving a parable, hey, this is kind of who the Father is like. Uh, didn't man demand blood? Uh, didn't say, listen, you can only be forgiven if like there's some kind of sacrifice here and you know I'm like a vampire who needs blood to be satiated. I could love you again and be none of that. We see a father who even in the midst of their son smelling like pig crap, um, I'm gonna he runs to the son, he throws his arms around him, the text says he kisses him, and the text says he has compassion on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, my heavenly Father is perfect. And then Jesus talks about God, you know, loving his enemies, being kind, God reigning on the just and the unjust, and then obviously looking at Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if if I see a, a, a scripture, a biblical writer portraying God in a particular story that is out of line with one of those four or all of uh, five, I'm sorry, if one of those five components of this lens that I just asked myself, I bet something's going on with the text. It could be that it's a tribal perspective. Mm-hmm. Like that makes perfect sense to me, right? You live in a tribal culture. You have other people in other religions who are saying the same thing that, you know, God enacts violence or the deity enacts violence if you guys don't get your crap together. Or maybe it's just me reading my bias into it. Like, did the text really say God did it? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, like I said, they're writing this stuff sometimes hundreds of years later. 
And if you got your butts kicked by a particular people group or tribe, you're going to say, yeah, God wasn't with, like, we must have had sin in the camp. Uh, God gave us over to the hands of the enemy. So that's just a crash course into sort of a lens that I have when looking at some passages. Sure. So let me just ask one follow-up, because I know the question yeah. that uh, my skeptic audience is going to ask mm -hmm. uh, is, is this. Uh, so we've got the Jews who saw God one way, and mm -hmm. we've got uh, the New Testament followers of Jesus who saw God in what appears to be a very different way. Um, how do you know which one was right? I mean, you've chosen a side, obviously, but yeah. how do you objectively know that the side you've chosen is right and not the other one? You Well, ob objectively, 100% wise, you don't. And I'm okay with that. You know, I, I've gotten to a place where, and this is what has gotten into sort of this cult mess, is when I dictate what others should believe and what is absolute truth. Mm -hmm. I've gotten to a place where I said, Hey, look at these biblical authors. Look at even the Apostle Paul. Like he only quoted explicitly maybe 2% of Jesus' actual verbatim words. But a lot of this is coming out of his lived experience. Sure. Like why do I have to say everybody else can have an experience and I have to follow their experiences and not my own? So I take experience very seriously and all I could say is there's no 100% objective way of knowing what is absolutely true. So at some level, you've got to choose sides. I mean, it's, it's, and it's not sometimes you, you know, choosing to not choose sides could be the choice, right? So I'm just saying we should be, and God gives us the freedom to make choices in what we want to believe and what we don't. Now, granted, I do think some have greater evidences for belief. I mean, I, I don't, you know, some people said this is our truth, that we're going to kill ourselves and we're going to fly in this comet to some other planet, Heaven's Gate, I think that was called, mm -hmm. Heaven's Gate. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, wh what's the evidence for the beliefs? and? You know, maybe they have less evidence for these, you know, to substantiate such wild claims. And maybe Christianity or even the Jewish religion has some, uh, you know, or Islam has some better claims there. But at the end of the day, all I could say is this Jesus character that I can't fully articulate or this God character rock my world. Sure. Well, oh, so you so you believe in the Quran? Oh, so... Oh, Muhammad and Allah rocked your... Listen, let me hear your story. Like, let me share my story with you. Right. I, I think the difference, though, is we're, we're you know, Heaven's Gate uh, or, or Islam, we don't really find those in the Bible. So you're going to need something besides the Bible to get to Heaven's Gate and Islam. If you just stick with, uh, you know, the, the biblical God, you still have two options to choose from. And uh, so you've got you've got the original Jewish vision of God, and then you've got the progressed view of God. I, I guess we can call it progressed view of God in the New Testament. And from when we're just looking at the Bible and we're trying to consider yeah, yeah. the Bible as a okay. uh, sacred writing, you've got mm -hmm. to you've got to just make a choice uh, as to which side of the the thirty nine you're going to read. You know, is it is it going to be that the God of the thirty nine or the God of the twenty seven? Well, as you know, I mean, you're you're very you know articulate on these matters. 
this is kind of a false position. It's a false dichotomy, right? Because we know people who say, wow, I embrace it all. Like in their mind, they can literally integrate this and look at Messianic (laughs) Jews. Right, but look at Messianic Jews, right? I mean, they're saying, wow, this is like, this is like a, a puzzle. Like, do you see how this fits in with Apostle Paul saying and Jesus did and the sacrificial lamb and the Passover? I mean, all of this is for them so integrated that there literally is, well, at least as far as I know, for some, there's no tension there. It's like I could take the whole thing as the word of God and somehow integrate it within this lens of now how they do it. I mean, that's it's very confusing. Very, I, I it's spent, very interesting. Uh, I spent yeah. a few weeks with Messianic Jews. I um, that was <laughs> that was one of the stations I went to uh, before right. before going out the door. Um, yeah, a, a but beautiful they do idea. It, right? Well, yeah, they do it. I never I never caught on to quite how they made it work, uh, which is I guess why right. I, why I didn't stay with it. But I did try it, and in their subjective experience, it works. It makes sense. It's, it's such a, a beautiful kaleidoscopic picture of God being interwoven in the fabric of human beings for centuries. So I acknowledge that. Um, do I see it exactly the same way? Do I say, yeah, I, I think maybe that prophecy, it had something to do more with the present day experiences than kind of you kind of cramming Jesus in that text? Probably, yeah, I would probably go that route. But man, they do it exquisitely. It's I'm like, wow, you see it that way? It's yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. So as interesting as this topic is, and as worthy yeah. of an entire show as it is, right, right. even more interesting might be uh, your view on the fall. Mm. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I've seen a lot of uh, diversity of opinion between people that I would consider progressives on the fall. I haven't found any that really support that idea. Uh, And yet I cannot understand a flavor of Christianity without some version of the fall. Talk, Uh, talk to us about the fall. Yes. This is when, from my understanding, Adam and Eve, they slipped on a banana the fruit. If only. <laughs> uh, yeah. And they felt, um, so it's, man, this topic is in progress, but I am definitely in my book pushing back on the, what I call the original sinful hellbound people. Now, do you ever, right? Do you ever? Yes. So I definitely push back in that. I think it's, it's toxic. Uh, you know, even, I mean, you read the story There's no mention of hell there. There's no mention of even when God gives them the curse, the curses that follow the consequences of them listening to that wily uh, snake there. uh, You know, he doesn't say that you're going to spend eternity in hell and be tortured. I mean, so you have to ask yourself if God in the original setting where the curse unfolded because of original sin you know, if it's not talking about hell, then we have to ask ourselves, where the hell did that come from? But that, that's that that's has always side. been one of my questions, actually, because um, no. I was a, I was a literal believer in hell, and it always troubled me that when mm. God was handing out the uh, punishments, in, in fact, when He was 
you know, handing out the threats before even before the punishment. Right. Hell was not one of them. And it seems like that it was it would have been important for them to understand what the what the real uh, threat was here. I mean, listen, the, the day you what is it? The, the, the day you eat of it is the day you shall surely die or something. Right. Right. Like, and I, I can imagine how do, how Adam saying, what's die? That, right. right. <laughs> what's, what's, I mean, come on. The die mean eternity in hell. I mean, so we have to ask ourselves. It's a good question. Like, where the hell did hell come from? But for me, what's catastrophic about some readings of this, I mean, beautiful, wonderful, powerful, truthful mythology is, I mean, there's there's exquisite nuggets out of there. I mean, there's a people group who's trying to make sense of out of their lived experiences of Man, we see the world. We see what happens in childbirth. We're people of the land, and yes, it's it's brutal to grow crops in this place, and and it's all intertwined in the story. But to read it as an objective science textbook for me, it misses the thrust of what can be an inspiring story from our ancient ancestors. Does does any of your fundamentalism come out at all? Is there a literal Adam and Eve? Was there a literal Garden of Eden? Uh, was there a literal serpent uh, tempting them? Uh, can you speak to that just briefly? Sure. I have to say presently, no. Um, and even the words Adam and Eve, I think they, they saw that even those words came much later in, in you know, Israel, uh, Hebrew thought. Um, and no, so no, I don't think there was a, a talking snake. I don't think, I mean, if you really take this, the story seriously, you have to say that there was, you know, Satan fell, Satan was on the earth, and there was thousands, what, a hundred thousands of demons hanging around, right? I mean, that has to be the implications here. Adam and Eve comes in the story. God sets them there in that location. That would be for me, hey, family, let's take our kids and let's go in a place where there's, you know, uh, drug dealers, pedophiles, rapists, you know, violence. Like, just if we take that at face value, that's kind of ridiculous, right? That's actually not being a loving father. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's hard to take this that it was an actual real objective story in history but here's where i think we get this wrong that doesn't mean that it can't inform us or inspire us or challenge us or as a community we can't look at that and draw something from that and say what does the fall look like in our lives right what what does shame look like what is this propensity to want to cover ourselves well hang, hang on before you before you get to the the meanings let me let me just uh suss out some of what it also may not sure. mean because once again i've got christians uh who i'm imagining uh, are are asking some of these questions too so i'm trying to yeah, I'm yeah. trying to channel Absolutely. both sides uh, so um if if there was no fall in the literal sense, then um, what is the mm. uh, what is the whole story of redemption then? Because isn't that to uh, you know isn't the story that we were uh, made perfect and then we made ourselves imperfect, and so God had to spend the rest of the drama 
trying to reclaim us and make us worthy of his presence again. I mean, uh, if oh, that's God. if that's not the case, then yeah, yeah how how, do, how are we supposed to understand that? Well, you have to come to a place of understanding for yourselves, but I will share my understanding and process. So a missing piece of this puzzle is what what would we how would make how would we make sense of the fall if evolution was true so for me that's an important piece of this puzzle here and so then for me if i say yeah evolution uh even if it was theistic guided evolution if that was true that says something about how we make sense of this notion of the fall then for me there was no you know, uh, perfect paradise with no evolutionary processes that in an instant, everything was pure, pristine, and not sinful, or I don't like to use sinful in that way, but not in process, right? Mm -hmm. But so that's what I might call the ontology of spatial energetic potentiality, where everything is... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hank, say, say that again. Yeah, say that again. Uh, are, we got we got bloggers who are going to want to write about that. Say <laughs> that's a mouthful. Yes. So if we take evolutionary processes and we say most likely that's that's what's been happening for billions of years, then I have this notion what I call ontology of spatial energetic potentiality. Yes, it's a nerdy esoteric made up phrase, and I could probably make it much easier. But for me, what it's referring to in an evolutionary lens is the constant movement, the constant change and fluidity of matter and experience. So it does encompass these sort of divinely created spaces located within and throughout the fabric of all reality that allow for potential events to occur, that allow for evolutionary processes to occur. Mm -hmm. So within that growth, decay, movement, Creaturely experiences, uh, well, this is eventually sentient creatures of choice and joy, despair, connection, and disconnection occur. So nothing remains the same. Everything is pulsating with the next moment. And within that is new experiences of life and movement of growth and progression, right? So then if we take that seriously, you know, there was no perfect people. Right. Right. There was there was always decay and chaos and novelty, growth, life. Right. There was always death. Death always existed. It was death that brought forth new life. Right. So if we think about it, was there really no such thing as plants growing and dying before Adam and Eve sinned? Right. Before what they call the fall, were there no insects that were drowned by heavy rains or eaten by other hungry creatures? Was childbirth originally created to be a painless experience full of pure physical and sensational delight? Could moments of joy, love, and peace exist without moments of loss, fear, and anxiety? Okay, so you're blowing my mind a little bit. Let me just let me just jump to the other end of that spectrum. It's a question that I don't have on my list, so uh, forgive me, but yeah, 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 I, yeah. I just have to ask it. If there was no fall in that sense... Then in did Jesus die for our sins to redeem us to God in some way, or did that not happen? 
Or I mean, now, I'm not asking whether he died, but I mean the, the interpretation yeah, yeah. of the death. So I, in the story, in the narrative, I think we're going to get there. Okay. So, so let, let's – one more piece of this puzzle. So I think for me, instead of original sinful hellbound people, I take – oh, my God. I'm, a, I'm feeling a little teary here. I don't know why. But I want to take a much more compassionate approach that if evolutionary processes were real – then we have to view ourselves as creatures who through the ripple of time have courageously fluttered, splashed, crawled, clawed, and slowly evolved into complex sentient beings Mm -hmm. through the moment-to-moment guidance and creative empowerment of a loving God. So if there's an original sin, then for me, we could say that that was the point where when we became sentient human beings, and then God said, Listen, I'm luring you toward this way, but then we had enough ability to have a choice to say no. Perhaps that could be considered the true fall. But even in that case, God was not surprised and infuriated at us. For me, God was patient and loving, ever inviting us to greater experiences of relational goodness, beauty, and truth. And that's what you see, right? There's definitely a progression here from us drawing on caves to flying to the moon, assuming that's actually what happened. So where does Jesus come into play? There is redemption here, right? Because Jesus gives us, and this is the sort of the Christian motif here, a full, fuller representation of the image of God. We can be redeemed in a greater measure because God incarnates Jesus in such a special and unique way where he says, this is what it means to be fully human. Because we have tribal brains, we have evolutionary brains, right? We have sort of leftovers from, you know, maybe more primitive part of us. And Jesus redeems us in that we don't have to live that way any longer. Jesus not only shows us how to do that by living a life in the spirit, but he he shows us and then shows us to the fullest extent of leading a life of sacrificial love to the point of being crucified. Now, where does a crucifixion take place in, in the grand story? I don't think God said, you know what? Uh, I'm writing this out, and I, here's five five kicks here. I'm going to have four guys spit on Jesus here. Um, the spear is going to go exactly here. Like, this is the Calvinist perspective. Mm-hmm. But for me, what happened is, exactly what would happen when humanity gets their hands on a fuller form of divinity. Exactly what they get their hands on love. Exactly what we see in people even who are fighting for justice, fighting for racial equality, who are lovers of of justice and equality, and human beings say, I'm going to snuff out your life. You are too radically, it's too, there's too much shalom here. Mm -hmm. There's too much love here. And, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Would you say that it was Jesus' express purpose to die? Uh, that he was sent to earth with the purpose of dying? Or was he sent to earth to um, show us a better, better way and he happened to have violently died? Does a fireman or woman go into a burning building with the thought that I'm going in solely to die. And they do die. Mm-hmm. 
Or is there a sense in which Jesus came with the express purposes of saving humanity from themselves? And But because of that, the consequence of doing such a thing, of incarnating in such a beautiful and special and unique way, the result was death. Okay. In God, in God's foreknowledge, did God know in God's infinite wisdom that would happen? Well, it seems pretty likely. Uh, so, but did Jesus come to die? Jesus came to live. Jesus came to teach. Uh, we're saved by Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' death in the sacrificial manner that it, it, it was done. And even in Jesus' resurrection, in which we are... We are alivened, even if you take sort of Marcus Borg's and other people's approaches, there is a resurrection. We're experiencing it, even for those who might not believe in a literal resurrection. Do you believe still, in a literal resurrection? I, I, and I'll take, I'll take Peter Rollins' approach here. I deny the resurrection every time I don't fight for systemic justice. Every time I don't fight for the marginalized, mm -hmm. every time I'm angry and lash out at my wife, that's that's my continual denying the resurrection. Okay, I will I will leave it there for the commenters to comment, and our comments are commenters are very active. I've got three more points. I don't think that we're going to get to them all, but I uh, <laughs> would just sure. love to just throw out a couple of huge issues and just have you take a couple of minutes to talk about them. Oh, boy. Um, oh boy. So um, next on my list is, uh, and this stuff just gets harder, prayer and the uncontrolling love of God. Now, uh, what you say about the uncontrolling love of God is pretty much what Thomas Ord also says about the uncontrolling uh, love of God. Did he influence you uh, in any way there? Or did you influence him? Uh, because you guys seem to uh, yeah. have very strong points of agreement on that. I think if, if there's a, a linear progression here, I think I was definitely moving away from a controlling God, moving away from sort of a Calvinistic God, you know, writing the blueprint, sort of God in control of every action, reaction, and event. So moving away from that already, then, and certainly elevating the love of God, it was then where I found Thomas Ord's work, who then invites me into this sort of notion of essential kenosis in the uncontrolling love of God. And then as far as prayer, I just said, oh my goodness, if God's love is not controlling, then it must have repercussions for prayer. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll get into more of that. And then as far as prayer goes, um, yeah, we've had conversations about prayer. I actually differ a little bit on, uh, maybe it's more of an emphasis uh, on prayer, but that's a nuance, a part of the conversation. Maybe that'll come up too. Sure. Well, let's bring it up right now. Uh, so <laughs> I, I said... <laughs> I said uh, on the board uh, and also in the vlog, you have yeah. written the best takedown of inter intercessory prayer I've ever read. Uh, I'm an atheist. Uh, <laughs> I, I am going to use this. Are you kidding me? This is oh my um, goodness. You, so you've made Satan's a lot using of, me. Yes, you've made a lot of atheist <laughs> friends. Um, 
with yeah, your write-up, and I just want to give you a chance to uh, make a few Christian friends, if you, because you, you surely must <laughs> see how you have... Uh, Listen, this what, is too much fodder for those who continually call me a heretic, so this is not good. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Um, I know. Brother, I know. Uh, we're <laughs> right on, brother. So what, yeah, I, yeah. what you have said about prayer um, is basically where I got you... Uh, on prayer when I in say my last year of active Christianity I got to where I couldn't pray uh, anymore I couldn't pray publicly uh, certainly Uh, I just didn't believe in it it didn't make any sense first of all uh, thy will be done great if I'm praying that thy will be done I don't really have to pray it you're gonna you've got a will you're gonna do it are you gonna not do it if I don't pray thy will be done that doesn't make any sense uh, and if that's all we're praying, then we're not really praying. So I don't, I don't see the point of that. Um, and then there's the idea of, well, there's this thing in the world uh, and, and in my life and in the lives of uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ here. You see this, Lord, right? So uh, what is the incantation I need to say here to make you act? Because you can act. And so if I say the right words, is that going to make you act? If, if three of us say the right words, will that make you act? If we say it for 10 weeks in a row, will that make you act? And, it, you know, when you ask questions that way, it just sounds it sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, even even in a room by yourself. And yeah. so, you know, just shadowly speaking, this this is some of uh, some of the things that you wrote about. And I just found that it fit with my experience in my last year of Christianity. Um, yeah. So tell us about intercessory prayer uh, as you see it, and then you know maybe give Christians a sense of what prayer should should look like. Yeah, boy, this could be a whole podcast, my friend. Every I do want to say could be a whole podcast. I know. So you know we we can agree. Like the book is the sec- second book we're talking about. Really, divine echoes. I do touch on this in the new book, Religious Refugees, but. I did write a three-part investigation, deconstruction, or reconstruction. So we're probably going to agree a lot on the deconstruction. But, you know, for those Christians who say, oh, my God, there is a re- – I did try to reconstruct petitionary prayer. So I don't know where to start on this conversation, only to say what you were saying rings true from my experience, too. Like, you know, just take a step back and ask, how are our prayers as Christians actually portraying God? And it's kind of really sick. I mean, God can only be this arbitrary, unfair, stingy, autocratic God who needs to be cajoled in some way to actually be more loving than God is. To me, that's absurd, right? And you mentioned it, sort of. Mm -hmm. So what's up with these prayer chains? So if we get, the idea is if we get 300, like God is looking for 300, but if he gets 299, he, he's not intervening in this situation. Like, what are we saying? What are we saying when we say, oh, God, we, we play for traveling mercies? Well, so if we don't play for traveling mercies for Jane, does that mean that God's going to, well, listen, no one pray traveling mercies. So although I have the power to save her from the accident, you know what? I'm just going to let her get into it. Like, what in the world are we talking about here? But I think the biggest catalyst, to be honest, for writing this, 
not only is it because it portrays God in a way that I think distance people from God, especially deeply thinking Christians, and it's it actually puts some atheists even to be more atheist or agnostic. But I think the, the biggest thing, too, is that for me, it creates more suffering in the world. That is where I said, oh, my God, if prayer, if we're praying for this person and they're in desperate need of healing or comfort, right, and we're saying, God, you do it. Meanwhile, God is saying, hey, guys, um, you're my hands and feet in the world, so actually I want you to do it. But we're thinking God is going to do it or we're trying to get God to do it. Then what's happening with that person? It's actually they are suffering needlessly because we're and this gets into what sociologists call the bystander effect. Mm -hmm. We're sort of sitting around where the great grand bystander is supposedly going to take care of it. And that that absolves us from human and moral responsibility. Well, so I think also, people have suffered. Yeah, I, I was just going to say this also. Uh, so you can you can continue with your thought. But this also goes yeah, yeah, into yeah. the uncontrolling uh, nature of God's love, because you can't really talk about the uncontrolling nature of God's love without uh, getting into a little bit of uh, Thomas Ord's theory of God can't. Uh, so it's it's not that yes. God is, you know, he would help you if you ask him the right way. He's already doing everything he can to help you. And if if the cancer is not being cured, it's because God can't cure it in the way that you that you think he can. He does that in cooperation uh, with Brother, I, I want to worship the God you're talking about right now. I want to worship that God. The, the one who can or the one who can't? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being funny, but yeah. yeah. I mean, you're getting into sort of my foundation for the reconstruction of petitionary prayer. Yes. So let's just dive right into that. We could we could deconstruct all day, including the two point four million dollar study that was done on intercessory prayer by Harvard University and Templeton Foundation with current people going through coronary bypass surgery. And just to cut it really short, it wasn't shown not to be effective. And those the group who were told that they would be be prayed for, uh, there were three groups. Then the one who were told that they would be prayed for actually experienced more complications than those who. Uh, we're not told. Yeah. And so News uh, Newsweek at the time wrote in their headlines, please don't pray for me. Anyway, so we'll go I, into I reconstruction that. here. And that is, for me, number one, God's moment-to-moment -moment love is perfect. And you, you said it. Um, God is moment-to-moment -moment loving to the greatest extent that God can. We do not pray God's nature into existence. God is perfect love. God loves. In each moment, God is loving. That's who God is. That is what God does. And God's moment-to-moment -moment love extends to all without the necessity of prayer. Right? The birds do not pray, but a loving God takes care of them. The lilies do not intercede, but God's mindful of them. I love this verse in Luke 6.35. The ungrateful and wicked do not pray, yet God is kind to them. Like people who have their proverbial middle finger, or maybe explicit middle finger up to God, God is still loving them. Right? God is, you know, right? He, he's uh, those who are evil and unrighteous do not pray, but God is, is loves them, right? He sends the rain and the just and the unjust. All that to say, God's moment-to-moment -moment love is perfect. God is loving in each moment. 
there again, there again, there again, God is up to something. So that's going to matter when it comes to petitioning prayer. And then God's love is uncontrolling and cooperative. And the, the second aspect is, you know, Thomas doesn't talk about this too much. It's implied in his work, but I'd like to emphasize it. So we're just suggesting that God cannot do some things due to God's nature, mm-hmm. that God doesn't forcefully control, right? So that's going to matter when we're praying for people. But also that we take that God is cooperative, meaning that God requires mutual assistance and collaboration to accomplish God's goals. So there's much more to that, but for the sake of time, you know, listen, we want to live in a world where there's no COVID virus wreaking havoc on human beings. Well, God wants that too, right? We want to live in a world where there's less inequality, prejudice, and racism. So does God. I mean, God is doing all that God can do to achieve these basic aims, but God can't control people. God can't root out our tendencies to judge, marginalize, and oppress others if we want, don't want God to do it. So for all those who are praying, God, you know, save this person or rid this person of COVID virus, heal them, or God, root out racism, God's like, uh, yeah, I'm wanting to, you don't got to beg me to do this stuff. You know, it's already a yes and amen to me. So that's going to change how we pray for people. And I don't know if you want me to get into well, what this change looks like in practical uh, terms. Yes, um, I, 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 I know that uh, I know that time is uh, is yeah. moving on, but I I want to give Christians um, some sense of the reconstruction of prayer because you go into that. Uh, quite a bit in your book, and I don't want people to be left hanging thinking that uh, you don't believe in prayer. There are just certain types of prayer that you don't believe in. So give uh, give uh, a little quick. bit of a summary of what you do believe about prayer. Yeah, of course we're very specific. You know, we're not talking about you meditative prayer, contemplative prayer, laments, you know, protest, praise. We're talking about petitionary prayer, which in essence is asking God to do something God wasn't doing beforehand. And in another way, we're asking God to be more loving. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're doing. So because God's love is uncontrolling, it's cooperative, and it's moment to moment, right? I'm just saying if we're going to pray petitionary prayers, the best prayers would be would be to pray conspiring prayer. And that's a form of prayer where we create space in our busy lives to align our hearts with God's heart, where our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together, and where we plot together to subversively overcome evil with acts of love and goodness. That's sort of conspiring prayer in a nutshell. It's not so much, it's to change us, but it's, so it's not specifically to change God, because God's loving to God's greatest capacity. This is where we, I might differ with Ord, and that's, you know, that's another rabbit hole. But I will say the most effective petitioning prayer is going to be, God, instead of God, you do, God, how can we do? So I'll put that, I'll end that there. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, when I was reading uh, that section, I, I thought, you know, this is almost like a meditation. I bet Sam Harris could could do this prayer. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see yes. anything other than, other than naming some external source of God. I didn't see... Uh, a lot in there that a atheist couldn't do and gain some benefits from, 
you know, from from the way you described it. So I just I just wanted yeah. to um, say that it's it's a very different look at prayer, and uh, it's something that you know, if Christians are having uh, trouble understanding uh, prayer in the traditional sense, uh, you offer a a um, different view of prayer that, you know, might have been useful to me back in the days when I was going through this myself. So uh, can I offer, can I offer your listeners something? Absolutely. If they do purchase the new book, Religious Refugees, I will give the best-selling book, Divine Echoes, to them as a PDF for free. I just want to throw that out there, which is on basically the investigation, deconstruction and reconstruction of petitionary prayer. That uh, that sounds like an excellent thing. So uh, let's start wrapping up. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a yes or no question. This is not fair. I know it's not fair. <laughs> I'm David Johnson, the host of Skeptics and Seekers. There's always something not fair. <laughs> all right, so, all right. So here I got it, it is. Um, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. I read um, your oh. article uh, a few days ago on uh, why you have trouble with the idea of demons in the Bible. I also read your article on spiritual warfare. This is not stuff oh. you covered uh, much in, in the book. Right. But right. Uh, so the yes or no question <clears throat> is this demons and angels. Yes or no. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but, but okay, this is how I'm going to be unfair. Uh, the answer is yes and no. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, um Hmm, that sounds like a yeah. stalemate. We've got to go. We've got to go another move. Um, so I did. Uh, I found your article on why you didn't feel, why you had tr- trouble with the idea of demons. I found myself yeah. going, yes, this this is exactly the thought, um, the the thought process that I have had um, as well. Just better said, yeah. and. Um, I, you know, I was having a, a discussion on the board with someone who's, uh, who said, yeah, all you have to do is apply that same uh, idea to God, and you understand where uh, the skeptic is. Because uh, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. there's almost nothing that you said uh, in there about uh, demons that couldn't be further applied. Uh, and so I just I found it an interesting yeah, yeah. article. I wanted to give you a chance to... To speak to that. Yeah. So, man, I think there's a way to capture the use of demons, the demonic. Um, but it's it's probably, to put it in a nutshell, it would be more metaphorical. Um, you know, certainly, uh, even in the past, uh, you know, week, I've used, you know, what happened to George Floyd, I would deem that as demonic. Mm-hmm. Now, am I using that in a way that connotes some sort of literal objective you know metaphysical spirits who went into the police no i would not uh we don't need to uh, there's there's um and I, and I give reasons for that but and and i think jesus says this you know um for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false testimony and slander that's matthew 15 19 through 20 mm-hmm. so you know at the end of the day i'm gonna land there uh, Jesus did not say for out of demons comes these things. And, and I also appeal to, you know, there was a book, I forget what it was, on on animals. And, you know, they're killing and they're raping and they experience depression. They actually cut themselves. Uh, they're the, the author of this uh, one book on uh, animals also um, s- talks about them killing themselves. 
so really uh, so is that demons like are, are demons and animals doing those things too like it gets a point where it's just kind of silly so and then you know a brother who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and over and over again it's demonic 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 no it wasn't right so so what happens people start taking lithium and an antipsychotic and that's a kryptonite for demons and they're in their right minds again so there's a there's a reasons why it's just hard to me to to take that at face value. Um, yeah, I think the, it, I think so, the hardest yeah, part for me uh, with that was well wait a minute if if there were actual demons this is me and my when I was a Christian if there are actual demons mm. uh, and they could possess people you just take over a person why isn't everyone taken over by demons um and if god could cast out demons then why are demons still harrying people i don't i don't that doesn't right and then you think about angels like and you think about spiritual warfare it's like do, do they do they ever do they ever kick the demons asses like i mean why are they still hanging around right like I mean, and why can why they would a good father right so exactly the question I asked, right? You know, like, do they use weapons that they actually can die and stuff? I mean, you'd figure after thousands of years, if there has been a battle going on, geez, I mean, if if God is on the side of angels, you figure, you know, uh, uh, demons would have got their butts kicked by now. Yeah. But those are questions we ask that right. just says, yeah, I'm not sure, in, you know, after really deeply reflecting on these things. And plus, I'll say one more thing in this. Those who say, well, you're a heretic, you don't believe in demons. Let me ask you, Mr. Christian, and weird because I'm I yeah. myself Christian too. Uh, but, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> I know. But uh, if you are a Christian and you believe in them, here's my statement to you. Most likely by your life, you deny them. Right? If you say you're an environmentalist and you never do anything to take care of your recyclables, you can't, you're not really a, an, an environment. You don't believe in the value of taking care of the environment. So I'll ask you, when was the last time you cast out a demon? Like, you take this seriously, right? Like, you want to be like Jesus, right? And Jesus did a whole lot of that. And you're to model your life after Jesus. So if you believe in demons, when was, tell me the story. When was, did you cast them out this week? Right? Was that sort of, was that flu or COVID or, uh, seizure that your a relative had or someone in the hospital did you just cast it out because that's what Jesus did and then I, I, I put this to some Christians and well I've never done that before you know so just by their lifestyle they're denying the reality of demons but at the same time they want to hold on to it uh, very staunchly for me there's some cognitive dissonance in that so I'm going to give you last uh, word here. Uh, this has been great. Um, we have to do it again sometime. Um, toxic- Can I just say something? Yes. I, I feel like I'm an I'm an atheist. It's like I'm listening to myself <laughs> talk, and I'm. It's like I'm an apologetic for atheism. It's so crazy. I can't believe that. How did no, I get in this place? Well, you know, um, you agreed to come on the show. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. on you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you go. I know. That's my stuff. I know. I know. I got to deal with that in therapy. Go ahead. So, um, but let me let me just say, this is why I uh, call you a progressive uh, Christian. This is how progressive Christians sound. This is how they talk. And I'm just trying to, you know, take it a little bit more seriously now than I did um, 
before. It's not like I didn't take it seriously before, but I, I want to understand it and I want the audience to understand it. And there are certain markers uh, about Christ- uh, a type of progressive Christianity that sound funny to the ear to the the fundamentalist and even uh, the mainline Christianity that hasn't looked any further uh, to the left than that. You know, sure. they sound funny to the ear. It takes a little while. It takes a lot of reading to get your eyes attuned to it. Uh, and I wanted to give you a chance to kind of help start that tuning process so that people yeah. can have another option. You know, there is another option uh, if you're finding a lot of cognitive dissonance uh, with yeah. the brand of Christianity that you're feeling now. And people yeah, might wonder, on, well, you know, you, why would I, as an atheist, want to help people solve their cognitive different, uh, dissonance? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't actually want to see people suffer. I don't want yeah, to see yeah. my parents. My parents are uh, Christians. Everyone I know um, from, from my past are Christians uh, and much yeah. of my present. I don't, I don't have any desire to destroy uh, yeah. people in the way that I was destroyed. And if right. there's a softer landing, you know, a, a less offensive form of Christianity uh, than progressive yeah. Christianity, I have not seen. And so if the if all of Christendom converted to that form of Christianity, I think I'd be happy. So uh, <laughs> so I, I, I love it. It's just giving people, like you said, another option. There are people who love Jesus, um, who even appreciate and, you know, value the sacred text of scripture, who value issues of social justice, who take life seriously, materiality seriously. I mean, people are out there and it's, you're right, it is a different option. And for some, they can land there and stay there for a while. And some, it just, after further reflection, even hanging out in that station or stream, it it just doesn't resonate. But at least to get people awareness that stuff's out there like that. It could be beneficial. So last word, uh, toxic Christianity. This is a term that I hear a lot. Uh, I hear and uh, never get a definition of, and I wanted to give you a chance to maybe think of one thing or two things that uh, you would describe definitively as a toxic form of Christianity and then give the inverse of that. What, what, um, a healthy form of Christianity would be. So it might be a doctrine or we talked about um, original sin uh, uh, earlier. I think that you used that term back then. So can you give me, um, you know, your quick thoughts on toxic Christianity, what that is versus um, a healthy or life-giving type of Christianity? Uh, Yeah, I think actually in my book, I, I do, I give a whole list. I think there are about 20 uh, beliefs that I once held that were toxic that I, I no longer uh, believe in. Yes, and you talk so, about two different types of um, to- toxins. Um, uh, yeah, cytotoxic yeah. and and uh, theotoxic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I could uh, I could run through a few. Um, so the first two that I, I do talk about, and so divine sufficiency. And let me just like do a very fast sort of speed round here. So divine sufficiency, God is all I need. I don't need other people f- to satisfy the deepest parts of my soul. I came to a place where I said, yeah, that's actually toxic. It was toxic for me because I I got to a point where I so elevated and tried to attain to that level of nirvana, never could and felt a deep sense of aloneness and struggle 
But then when I went to the converse truth of I need God and I need other people, uh, and I need deodorant and toothpaste and good music and other things too. But that was, you know, that was a shift for me. And it might seem silly, but that was important. I once believed that uh, all the divine portrayals uh, of God in the scripture that were enacting or commanding divine violence was 100% objective and literal. And so I, I would not believe that at this point. And I uh, would concede that at sometimes the biblical writers were culturally conditioned. And so therefore, uh, when it comes to divine violence, I don't believe. And I already went through my pentalateral uh, hermeneutic of love there. Another one is human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil. I would say that human beings are we're a mixed bag. And so I'd like to say that we're we're good in our core. And that's sort of the, even the sort of a Buddhist strain, mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, we won't get too much into that. But if I was honest, those are metaphysical claims. At the very least, I can say we have great capacities for both uh, good and, and harm. So we're, we're not primarily uh, one or the other, potentially, mm -hmm. right? So, human beings sin against God, they deserve uh, eternal suffering and torment, definitely don't believe that anymore. God's truth can only be found in the biblical text. Believe that at one point, I no longer believe that. Uh, Arthur Holmes, a philosopher, once said, all truth is God's truth. And if we really believe the Spirit is at work with all people uh, in all geographical locations, then we must concede that there are truths found in other places besides the biblical text. The body and its desires are wicked. I no longer believe that. Um, so there, there are a lot of different things. Uh, masturbation is always unholy and sinful and will kill a lot of cats. Um, don't believe that. <laughs> uh, if, if you give the church money, uh, God will bless you if you don't. God won't. Pastors and those in leadership are somehow holier and deserving of more intrinsic worth. And those are not, you know, I, I don't believe that. Mental illness is caused by demons. I no longer believe that. And so there's just so many that, you know, praying, we talked about that, increases God's love unilaterally. In, in other words, if we pray more, God can force God's way into situations, events. I no longer believe that. God should only be considered to have masculine characteristics and be thought of solely as him. I no longer believe that's the case. Human beings are more important than other creatures, and all creatures are for humans' consumption and purposes. I no longer believe that. Uh, you can be healed of sickness if you just have enough faith. I no longer believe that. Self-love is contrary to Christian values. I no longer believe that. God loves some and hates others. So, my God, I just keep going. But So I no longer believe those things and believe the opposite. Excellent. Well, that's quite a that's quite a list <laughs> right off the top of your head, yep. uh, not realizing that was coming. So uh, let me just say, uh, concerning that list, I'm not I'm not acknowledging anything, but my cat is just fine. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, nice. <laughs> ladies and the gentlemen, myth is debunked. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She is. 20 years old <laughs> so uh she's fine <laughs> um so uh ladies and gentlemen um that that was mark Karras. uh you can uh, you can learn more about mark Karras. uh look in my show notes uh, when the blog goes up uh click on his blog uh read through his blog that's the fastest way to get to uh know a little bit about mark Karras and where he is and then when you're done with that 
uh, click on the link that takes you to his book and buy his book, Religious Refugees. It's, uh, it's, it's worth a read. Uh, it does not matter if you are Christian or otherwise. Uh, I think that uh, you will find it um, a, a very, very uh, interesting read. And while you're buying books, uh, while you're buying books, uh, folks, uh, Surviving Corona, uh, that book is $2.99. It's cheaper nice. than Mark's. Um <laughs> <laughs> Look, buy them both is what I'm saying. <laughs> buy them yes. both. Um, the uh, proceeds uh, for surviving Corona goes to uh, the Red Cross uh, because they know better than I do uh, who is in need and exactly how uh, to help them. They are uh, the people who are joining on the spot when uh, when people have fires. Uh, their homes burned down the middle of the night. Uh, you know, you can call your insurance company, definitely. Call the ambulance, definitely. But uh, your first call <laughs> should probably be the Red Cross. They will be there uh, with blankets, clothes, and they will get you uh, into a hotel so you can have some place to sleep. Those are the people uh, who take care of that sort of thing. Uh, they're the unseen heroes. They do more than just blood donations. I used to work for uh, the Red Cross. It's amazing. Uh, what all they do. And so all over the world, they know where uh, the need is. You know, we're no longer talking about the coronavirus now because uh, the world has blown up into uh, racial unrest. By the way, there'll be a podcast um, uh, on that uh, next week. So if you're wondering what I have to say about that, me and uh, my friends, we will be uh, spending some time uh, on that next week. We wanted a chance to get our uh, thoughts together and catch our breath a little bit. So that's coming. Uh, but I don't want you to forget that the coronavirus is uh, still there. Uh, all over the U.S. South, we've got new hotspots uh, popping up all the time. It's just that that's not the news now. There's other news. Um, in uh, New York, uh, near where I live, a thousand people a day are still being infected. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, where I live, we're talking about between five and 700 people a day, uh, still uh, uh, new cases. Uh, what happens to all of these cases when the cameras stop rolling and when they're rolling on uh, protests or when they're rolling on uh, the politics of the day or when they're rolling on the next great outrage? What happens to all of these cases and all of these people who are suffering? They keep suffering, except they don't have the funds anymore. The funds pour in uh, when our minds are on it. But this is the great thing uh, about the Red Cross and about efforts like Surviving Corona. They're the gifts that keep on giving uh, when the cameras stop rolling. And so I need you to be the kind of people who donate to this cause when the cameras are not rolling. Because the cases and needs are still rolling. They're still rolling in every day. Every day. And so uh, please uh, buy the book. Also, make a donation. You can come to uh, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Just click on the tab that says Surviving Corona. You can make a donation um, that will uh, go for that uh, cause, too. And so uh, without uh, any further ado, I will go ahead and bring this to an end. Please uh, uh, stop by the stop by the discussion uh forums mark i mean I, I ask all of my guests to do this uh most of my guests are smart enough not to go to the comment session section <laughs> but but i'm asking you to not be smart enough to go to the uh to not uh go to the comment <laughs> section pop in if you've got a discuss account um just just stop by and uh, say howdy uh and uh, the good. audience will say howdy to you they're real nice folks 
some of yeah, them. Yeah, can you send me a link to that? When I will. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you a link okay. to it. I'm going to get this all up uh, today. So, uh, Mark Karras, uh, Religious Refugees, hopefully we have you on again. It's been an outstanding conversation. Bye-bye, all. I absolutely loved it.